programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Festival in Logan. Presents a tribute to Richard Rogers, July 22nd, including career highlights of My Funny Valentine and Bewitched, Bothered, and Bewildered. Shows, concerts, and workshops July 8th through August 8th. Details at utahfestival.org. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We were in Vernal last week on the occasion of an event for StoryCorps. StoryCorps, of course, is in uh, Vernal through the month of July. Had a chance to uh, talk with some Vernal City officials. You'll hear those interviews today. Talked with Ken Bassett, Vernal City Manager, and uh, later in the program, Daniel Anderson, who is a StoryCorps booth facilitator. As you'll hear from these uh, interviews... Vernal has uh, some issues that are very much tied, as we know, to oil and natural gas development. We'll look ahead to what might happen in the future in the city. We start with uh, Joanne Cowan from the Vernal Municipal Council. So I wanted to talk a bit about uh, boom and bust and, and the cycles that happen. Um, I lived through you know, a lot of, a lot of boom, and, boom and bust growing up in, in Vernal. And then I, I'm hearing anecdotally and coming back to visit that uh, we've been through recently probably the biggest boom, I'm, I think. I don't know if that's been your experience. Oh, I don't even know for sure. But in any case, a uh, large influx of people, uh, businesses. Um, and each month we get the sales tax revenues, and uh, we never got as high as like the 2005-8 numbers yet, and our wherever that last drop was, uh, we haven't gotten quite that low yet either, but it's pretty up and down, mm-hmm. and I, I think the schools know that, the community knows that, the stores know that, you know, and it's just part of that. I know the, the dream is that someday we'll have an economy that is more stable, and one of the dreams is that, you know, oil shale will become a reality, and that will be a more consistent product, but... Certainly, in the price of oil today, uh, oil shale is probably unrealistic because it costs so much more uh, to get it out of the ground, and and it is a more viable product when prices are higher. So right now, the international prices on petroleum are making, I would think, oil shale companies kind of sit back a little bit and wait. You were saying earlier that uh, people focus on oil, but but really it's natural gas. That's yeah, the, probably the, big the biggest product we produce locally is natural gas. And, you know, we we laugh and we call ourselves the oil patch in an oil town and this sort of thing. But I, I think the biggest production is has been uh, natural gas for several mm-hmm. years. And right now prices of natural gas are so low that um, you just turn the well off and when the prices go up, they'll turn the well back on. Mm-hmm. Do we see indications that there that there is a slowdown? Is there... Is it, is it slowing down, that, that work, or the, the economy overall here in the basin? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Companies are, there have been hundreds and hundreds of workers laid off. I saw a number, and it's and a huge amount. I mean, the, the folks that work out in the oil field that are doing the, the getting it out of the ground piece of that, they are losing their jobs right and left. The people who are doing the pumping it and sending it off to market part of that, they still have jobs because they're still sending the product out. 
but the new exploration and the new development and the, the work and the jobs related to that, those are, those are going. Mm -hmm. And companies are firing people right and left, reducing staff. Um, my nephew worked for a company and they went to where they were trying to spread it out so the misery was shared by everyone in the company. And they got down to where the guys were working four days a week, less hours, so they could put a little bit of money in everybody's pocket instead of having to let guys with families go. But it is, it is pretty devastating. And then there are other people who have been career employees in the oil business and they're cutting their salaries by 10% and 20% and 60%, but you can keep your job. And then there are lots of folks from here that have moved up into Wyoming to work or have gone uh, back to Pennsylvania or, or up to North Dakota. North Dakota's struggling too. But um, people are moving and companies are downsizing. The great big national chain companies are reducing their whole staffs down. Um, I have a friend who works for a, a company and Every time I'd see her, she'd say, oh, I've got to go fire five more people this week. I've got to fire six people. I'm just sick. I have to let these kids go who just bought homes and cars and just got married, and I've got to fire them all this week. Mm -hmm. And it's it's been tough on families. It's been tough on the community. People are just kind of scared. Mm -hmm. So you said the hope is that the economy will, you know, you can you diversify. What, uh, are there any things that the community is working on in that respect? Well, I mean, there's not much else to do in this area. Commercial agriculture isn't viable in our community because of the water issues and stuff like that. The timber business generates a little bit of, but um, I mean, petroleum is the major thing. Um, the, you know, there are a few jobs attached to the airport and there's a few jobs attached to the electric company and this sort of thing. Biggest employer is the county and the school district. Mm -hmm. You know, those only grow so big. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the only industry in the community, if you're gonna, you know, call something industry, is oil-related, and then we've got a, you know, thriving uh, group of skilled carpenters and craftsmen and contractors but they're only going to build houses if people have jobs to pay for the houses. So um, we have two or three wonderful lumber companies and, and housing companies that provide plumbing and that sort of thing. The only way they create jobs is if people are, you know, it's all tied together. And so the town is kind of, kind of scared. Mm. Uh, there are some other, uh, you know, mining operations and such. I guess, but those are—I imagine those are on smaller scale than the oil. Oh uh, yeah, they're much smaller, and they don't—they don't have near the number of employers. I mean, and those are, those are pretty stable. You know, the Gilsonite doesn't change, and they are pretty solid numbers of who works there. They don't go up and they don't go down much. The, the tourism. I mean, it's, we've always had some tourism. And tourism is is kind of an interesting thing because when the oil field is booming, the oil companies take over all of the hotels and guarantee the the sales in the hotel because they put their whole crew into you know the local hotel 
and so that drives the prices of the hotels up. So people that come out here to play golf or to run the river or this kind of thing, they can't get into the hotels because the oil companies are in them. And now the hotels have rooms available, but people are saying, oh, don't go out to Vernal to do the dinosaur river rafting thing because the uh, hotel rooms are so expensive. So our niche of the dinosaur thing has been a little bit more difficult to sustain because families can't afford to come out and pay those kind of prices. Mm. And then everybody in the state of Utah has a dinosaur something. And we're competing with dinosaurs in carbon. We're competing with dinosaurs in Orem. Hogel Zoo somehow thinks they invented dinosaurs. Everybody's got a dinosaur. And so the idea that you're going to drive out to Vernal, Utah to see a dinosaur, mom goes, we'll just go to Hogel Zoo. They have mechanical ones. <laughs> and so, you know, the, the tourism piece of that, we still get the folks that want to come out here and see the spectacular geography and... Um, the terrain between here and Flaming Gorge is unbelievable. If you're in the geology, we have the River Runner folks that come. Um, but again, with the lack of snow, the river running business is kind of phases itself out by middle July because the water's not there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like there's some challenges. Yep. Ahead in in Berlin. Strapping yeah. on the seat belts and waiting to see how this ride comes. Yeah. I was talking to a gentleman the other day uh, who was talking about what you might call some lagging indicators. Uh, if, you know, if we're seeing a bit of a downturn, um, the schools apparently are still packed. Yep. Is that, is that the case? I guess we, we might be seeing fewer kids next year, but we, we don't know yet. Next. And I, I think the school is, is kind of, I wouldn't want to be in charge of hiring and firing teachers. And I know there's a whole list of teaching positions they want to fill, but I think they don't know for sure how many kids they're going to have. And I know in my neighborhood, the day after school let out, three families, I watched them pack up and move the next day. And that kind of thing is happening all over the community. Families stayed here until their kids finished the school year and left. I don't know how many of those there are. Um, I and but I, I know that there are more apartments for rent than they've been in a couple of years there are more houses for sale there are people who are trying to get out of their houses uh, the column of apartments and houses to rent in the newspaper is growing and um, I think that the schools are going to be down but I I think that that takes the pressure off the community to come up with the money to maybe build an additional elementary. Um, I know that they have split the schools and they're moving the ninth graders to the high school to offset the growth in the middle schools. But, um, you know, the schools were really just bursting at the seams. And so if they have a little bit of downturn, I don't think they're going to be particularly upset. Right. Um, Another, I guess, I don't know if it's a lagging indicator or, or something that follows with increasing unemployment and maybe a downturn in the economy is, is an increase in the use of social services. I wonder if we're seeing that. Oh, I'm, I'm sure. I, I'm sure that the uh, workforce services people are just, you know, pulling their hair out trying to do that. I, the homeless shelter... A lot of times when you have a lot of people coming to town hoping to find jobs, 
they end up at the homeless shelter until they can find a job. Um, and then they are able to move out and do that. But um, right now, bus ridership is up on our local transit system. Um, I know that the calls for uh, food at the food pantry and that kind of thing, I'm sure those are high. I'm sure that the local uh, church groups are seeing demands from uh, parishioners to, to have help with food and rent and those kind of things. And I'm sure that the churches are dealing with that. Um, one of the programs that I'm really interested in and um, have been involved with is the victim advocate group. And certainly I would not imply for a minute that the only people who are uh, victims of uh, family violence are people that work in the oil field or people that are, you know, day labor kinds of people. But we certainly see a correlation between calls for services uh, with domestic abuse and family abuse are tied to the economics and what that does in a family. And when families are losing the car and losing the job and not able to provide what they want for their families, that increases the pressure in families no matter where they are in the economic spectrum. And so I'm sure that uh, Victim Advocate has seen some uh, challenges there. And I know one of the things that we've done is we've used community impact board money to help fund our the building of our uh, Victim Advocate building. And so we tried to trace the numbers of calls that we got for services to uh, employment in the oil so that we could justify that with um, a community impact board and there is a slight correlation between um, economics in, in petroleum industry and calls for services there but certainly I would not want to imply for a minute that those are the only families that need that kind of help or service. So tell me about uh, there, there are some efforts and a recent push to build a shelter what, we, have, we have built a, a lovely shelter it's okay. a little bit small but um, it meets uh, we house women from Duchesne and Daggett County here as well and um, it's a small maybe five bedroom home and and they're not allowed to stay a long time but uh, they get some help with relocation if they need to or uh, set up plans to help them so they can uh, become independent. There's counseling available to both victims and spouses and this kind of thing. But we have a, a victim advocate program here that, you know, you're, I wish that we were out of business and they have to shut it down, but right. that's not going to happen. Well, while we're talking about this, uh, give a chance to, you know, I don't know, the contact point where people could help out. For the you know the, the shelter or volunteering or want to donate money or what? Uh, you oh, know, absolutely. We take we take donations and we get some good support in the community. Um, people will donate clothing and this kind of thing. One of the things that they do is they accept donations of household goods, and so if a woman leaves her home and moves out into a an apartment or something like that, they can put together a kit that's got a frying pan and a toaster and pots and pans and dishes and things that they left when they left their home that they need when they move into an apartment or a motel or a something so that they can provide the basics for their family. And they put those kits together. Um, we always like donations. Sometimes we just need to 
put somebody on a bus and send them back home to be with their family where they can get the support and the help. Um, we like donations of phones and phone cards and things like that because you people need to be able to have a secure phone line so they don't get calls from um, the abuser and this sort of thing. Uh, but we have counseling services housed here in Vernal City downstairs that if people need help with stuff they can come in and start the um, program there and the, there we have advocates down there that can help them and direct them towards services. How best for people to get a hold of the, the, the program if they, if they want to help? Is there a website or? Uh, they can contact, they, I'm sure that's a website, they can call the Vernal City offices and they will direct them down to the Victim Advocate okay. Office and they can help them with that. But we, um, we get some pretty good support from the community, but we always need additional support. Right. Sometimes you just need to give a, a family a bus ticket and some money and help them move back to someplace else. So. Mm. If you just joined us on this part of the program, Access Utah, we're talking with Joanne Cowan, who is a Vernal City Council member and uh, has worked in many areas in the community and uh, a longtime teacher and, and principal, high school principal. Yes, well. I was. <laughs> um, so we're, we're talking about issues in Vernal, and we're here on the occasion of uh, StoryCorps. I know you went into the StoryCorps booth. Yes, how, I how did. How was that experience? Well, I was kind of intimidated. I thought, I don't have a story to tell. Uh, but I, I kind of enjoyed it and um, it was a very pleasant experience, went through and since then I've gone, well I need to get this friend and this friend and this friend in there and I thought I don't want to go in there because I don't have a story and we just visited about um, some of my experiences in education and things that I had seen that were changing from education then and education now and visited about changes that had happened in the city and, and this sort of thing. And it wasn't like I needed to tell some great life-changing story about my life, because there aren't any of those. But um, it was a little different than I thought it would be, and it was just an opportunity to visit about a part of my life. And I thought the best part of that is you go in with somebody who knows you that you're comfortable with, and they can visit and chat with you and kind of lead you through stuff, and it becomes a conversation with a friend rather than I'm going to go in and tell my story and I I have some friends who are taking their grandparents in because they want that story recorded and they want to share that but um, I have some really wonderful friends who have made marvelous adjustments in their lives and and who at some point in their life um, they made good choices and good decisions that helped their life change and I I think those are the kinds of stories that perhaps people are interested mm -hmm. in more than I was raised on a farm. Mm -hmm. right, kind of right. right. <laughs> By the way, I think of you every time I go through Duchesne. There's Cowan's Cafe. I was still, raised still on there. a farm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Very good. Um, I wonder, uh, we were talking about um, the, the influx of workers, or I want to talk about that now. You were telling me before that uh, 2008, the, big influx of workers, mostly single men, then later on, people bringing their, their families. And I'm curious about, if you have a big influx like that, um, do they integrate into the community? Are there problems of meshing? Are there, there no, divisions I, there? No, I, 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 I didn't see so much of that. 
the thing that you would see is you'd see an apartment or a house that would have eight pickup trucks around it and you knew there were eight guys living there together and people would would hook up and join up and and you'd have six or eight guys sharing an apartment and um you know it was they were just working here their families weren't here and then they would take off and and the oil companies can be really creative in scheduling and they would work 10 days on and 10 days off or um, two weeks on and a week off kind of thing and so those families were out the door um, to fly home or to drive home and the, those gentlemen you know were with their families and most of them were in an economic situation where the reason they were invulnerable was to make as much money as they could to pay the mortgage at home and so you didn't see them a lot in the community. You didn't necessarily, I mean, they ate in restaurants because a lot of men don't like to take the time to cook. And so, you know, you would see them in restaurants and stuff, but I don't know that there was a horrible impact as far as them uh, hanging out in the bar, this kind of thing, because they were here to work really hard and most oil people work really hard and they work unbelievable hours. I mean, four in the morning and six and seven at night. And in the winter, it is so cold. I mean, it takes them five hours to thaw out when they get back from, you know, band eleven at night. And um, they they were just here to work and make money and send home their families. Mm. Uh, I wonder about, um, you've, you've worked with public safety, right? Worked with the, yes. Uh -huh. the police department. I wonder about the, the, the continuing this question of integration or, or no, I wonder if there are any law enforcement problems or maybe they're not with, with well, a lot of people who yeah, are, you know, long-term members of the community. You're going to, if you get a whole bunch of young single guys living in town, they're going to work hard and they're going to play hard. And, and, and I think, and that's just absolutely contradictory to what I just said. I think the older guys that had families were about sending the money home to their, their families. The younger guys that came here to work they worked hard and played hard and you know the 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 clubs and the restaurants and the bars and the alcohol consumption goes up proportionate to the number of people that were here but you know you have a you have some folks that get drunk and act stupid and nobody's smarter when they're drunk mm -hmm. but i don't know that we had a horrible crime wave you know those people are making good money and they have money you're probably going to have more Burglaries, breaking into cars, petty theft, um, fraud kinds of things. When the economy's down, then you're going to when the economy's up. Um, I, th I think you're going to have people who are out of money that are going to come up with illegal creative ways to try and generate money. But uh, I, th I think you're probably going to see a bigger increase in crime when the economy drops, mm. but it's you know not a huge thing. Mm. Are there any you know any statistics that are out of whack? For instance, I guess maybe because of large influx and growth in the economy, one thing I've heard is a, a fairly high heroin rate. Yes. In in the Uta Basin, yes. I don't know if you match that. If you can match that up to the you know the. I economy, I don't or? think you can tie that at all into oil. I don't think you can tie it into uh, the economics in the community. Heroin is easier to get, it is cheaper, and uh, there are so many restrictions on 
uh, like meth used to be the nonsense of choice, but that the government has put so many restrictions on the ingredients that go into meth that, I mean, you and I can't go down and get a Sudafed when we've got a head cold because some, they're afraid, you know, somebody's gonna make it into uh, meth. So the, the meth production in our community is almost non-existent. The meth gets produced somewhere else and brought here by uh, the same people. Um, the heroin right now is, is really fairly inexpensive and terribly frightening because I think that people don't realize how difficult that is to, to deal with and to get over. And I remember sitting in a narcotics task force meeting about five years ago and one of the communities was talking about having heroin influx and I just puffed up my little chest and was so proud because we didn't have it in Vernal and now I can't do that because we do. But um, I, I mean, when I was a kid, the thoughts of trying heroin were so frightening, I would never, you know, I mean, of all the things you might see on the spectrum of illicit, illegal products, heroin was the boogeyman that nobody wanted to, kids aren't scared of it anymore. Mm. Um, the thing, and I may be naive, but I, I think that we were really worried about um, the marijuana in Colorado. And I don't know that, and, and I may be speaking out of hat and five cops may slap me when I'm done here, but I don't know that we see a big influx of marijuana coming there. It's not like marijuana is a rare commodity in any community in the United States, but I don't know that I am not aware of Colorado impacting the availability of that uh, in Utah. I don't, I don't know that that's changed a whole lot, yeah. and and I would be glad to be corrected if I've misspoken. Right. Yeah, we did. Bernal is for those who don't know the geography. You know, we're twenty miles away from Colorado. You know, yeah. Here, so, there. And and probably the 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 benefit there is the two border towns over there have voted not to allow mm. marijuana sales in their communities. So if somebody's going to go to Colorado for that reason, they're gonna have to go to Grand Junction or I would just steamboat be the next place, maybe right. Denver. Right. And I just think people are not gonna, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm not aware of that being a big impact here. Uh, we're just down near the, the end of the time here. Um, Wonder maybe looking to the future. I'd like to frame this by having you put on your high school principal hat again, and uh, looking at uh, the future out here through the lens of you know the kids that are going to be graduating soon. What uh, what concerns do you have? What opportunities will they have? What what issues are they going to face? Looking um, toward the future. If if I was mentoring or raising a child and they were eighteen, I. I think I would be really concerned about where do I head my kids so that they're guaranteed employment. And I think that, you know, the bottom line is, I mean, there's education for education's sake, which is delightful, but if you're an art history major, you may starve to death. But what, where do you head your kids so that they can have a job with guaranteed um, income? And, and I don't know where that job is. I don't think universities are necessarily the, the answer. I think the STEM piece of that 
the the engineering the technology is is a more likely place to find a career so that you can work um, and and lots and lots of really wonderful jobs require technical skills as as electricians and and machinists and that kind of thing more than um, the old traditional university things i i think that would be a real concern how do you guide a kid into a career path that's going to guarantee employment and we all know people who are living in their parents basement because they have a job an education in this but there aren't any jobs there so i think that's one concern i think the other concern is this um university for profit thing and kids signing to go to acme university because you get a free laptop but you have to, to get the laptop, you have to sign up for these uh, horrible college loans that kids will never be able to pay off. And the loans at a standard university are not anywhere near as difficult to pay off as if you go to one of these for-profit universities. And, and when the biggest for-profit universities are paying their presidents as much as Fortune 500 companies are paying their presidents and CEOs, then it's about making money. And you cannot turn on the TV without seeing dozens of these uh, computer-generated online universities that may or may not be developing a, a good product. But the end result is you have an old laptop and a lot of student debt. And I think one of the important things is to try and guide kids to get an education and minimize the amount of student debt that they get strapped with the rest of their lives. Um, I, just, I just think it's frightening the amount of money that kids are being talked into uh, borrowing so they can get a degree in something they may or may not be able to make a living from. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're uh, hearing interviews that I did uh, last week in uh, Vernal. And uh, coming up following a break, I'll be talking with Vernal City Manager Ken Bassett. Stay with us. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Shift Festival, October 7th through 10th in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. An in-depth exploration of the opportunities and challenges at the intersection of conservation and outdoor recreation. Featuring food, film, speakers, workshops, and outdoor adventure details at shiftjh.org. On this part of Access Utah, I'm with Ken Bassett, who is Vernal City Manager. So uh, just a few months ago, we had you on, on the program. And we were talking about issues of growth and uh, economic cycles. Mm-hmm. So I want, to, I want to start there. What, uh, what's the situation right now, with, uh, especially with the, with the economy in Vernal? Well, you know, I, I've been through uh, several ups and downs with the economy, but I would consider this to be a, a very unique uh, lag in the economy, uh, certainly dealing with the price of oil and uh, also the price, price of natural gas. And so with both of them being down and being down as low as they are, uh, you know, we have had, you know, many of the uh, support industries for oil and gas uh, either cut back uh, significantly or leave. And so that, that does make a difference in the economy. Uh, you know, many of these uh, big names, Anadarko, 
Halliburton, that you hear, they're still here, but they have let go many of their employees simply because they're just not actively pursuing their interests as long as those prices remain low. And uh, certainly with the most recent Iranian agreement, um, it's probably, you know, I'm not looking at anything happening that's going to strengthen the economy for, for a little while because I think we're going to be having some Iranian oil uh, imported. We're able to export it now and it's going to make it more difficult for us. So it's tough. And for budgets of local government, you know, that rely on oil and gas industries, uh, it, is, it is tough. Our sales tax right now is, is taking a hit and we anticipate that. Fortunately, in years past when things were up, we were able to put away some money and that makes it easier to exist, maintain levels of services that uh, our residents uh, always expect to receive. And so, so that's where we are right now. Uh, we hope that, we always hope that things will improve and they will. You know, I think over the many, many, many years uh, of oil and gas industry in this area, we've seen it again and again and again where things, uh, the economy goes down but it comes back up. So we're hopeful, we're optimistic, but we're also cautious. Mm -hmm. So I, I want to follow up on the hopeful part. Do you, um, in a best case scenario, you know, given a downturn now and, and, the, and the, the companies are, some of them are pulling out of the Uinta Basin, what, uh, what's the best case scenario for Berlin and Uinta Basin? Well, once again, the best case scenario is, you know, I think is with maybe a change in administration. Uh, that's a little ways off yet. To so, loosen up federal? Uh, yeah, I think uh, where you have an administration that is so focused on environmental concerns, regardless of the facts, regardless of the, uh, you know, really the issues, that they just, you know, are beset with in environmental concerns. You're always going to have situations occur where, uh, you know, the industry, the oil and gas industry, is always very cautious and, and pulls back. I've seen it. And generally, that is the case, uh, not necessarily always, but generally with a democratic administration, because that's their, that's their platform. Right, right. So that's, that's the oil and gas sector. Yes. Uh, do you think oil and gas is always going to be the, the driver, the, the biggest? Do you know, I, I do. Uh -huh. I, I do. We have, we have been able to diversify quite a bit. Vernal City itself really has established itself as the economic, as the commercial hub uh, for the basin, as well as uh, Western Colorado and Southern Wyoming. It's, it's nice to be able to have the shopping options that you have here. And that's, that really has, has grown in the past maybe 10 years to what we have right now. So that's good, that's diversity. The other thing that's great, and it's always been the case, is tourism. Tourism is wonderful. The uh, hunting, the fishing, the, the rafting, all of the amenities that you have here in our area in northeastern Utah uh, with the natural resources and the, the beauty, um, you know, Flaming Gorge, all of those things just add to the ability 
to increase your tours. And of course, you know, not enough can be said about the dinosaurs mm -hmm. and uh, the uh, National Monument. Right. Um, I wanted to ask you about the, the monument. Uh, it's, I assume it's a draw. Oh, it, it most definitely is. And especially, uh, you know, with the latest dinosaur movie coming out, uh, I, I think it'll draw more and more and more. Brand new facility, uh, beautiful facility now that they've uh, made some major vast improvements to it. And so it will always be a draw. So I wonder, um, I've been reading some unrest, at least in the you know, conservative press, about suspicions that President Obama might use the Antiquities Act to create a monument somewhere in Utah. We don't know where. He's been doing some in surrounding states. I wonder what the prevailing opinion in Vernal would be about that. Well, I, I don't know really if that's going to have much effect in Vernal. We already have Dinosaur National Monument. I don't think that's going to have a big concern. My concern with you know President Obama's um, philosophy and maybe attitude is that he can do what he wants to do and without a lot of regard to the economy of the area and how it's going to affect the area. Many times when you establish an area for you know, a national monument or a national park, you think, well, that's going to be a draw for tourism. It just depends where it is. If it's right in the middle of areas where you uh, have rich uh, oil and gas reserves, then it could be a very difficult issue. Mm. Okay. So earlier I asked you about best case scenario in a changing economy, a bit of a downturn. I want to ask you about a worst case scenario. And I imagine you as a city manager, you know, some things you hope won't happen, maybe won't happen, but you, you got to plan for it and, well, and try to prevent. You know, once again, we, we've been able to diversify enough that there's, I, I think, a sense of stability to you know our baseline economy here, as I mentioned, you know we put away money, but uh, I think this city is prepared, you know, to always be in a situation where we can provide the the basic services for our community. Um, worst case scenario uh, would be that you know for you know a long period of time the oil and gas never bounces back. And uh, because of the Middle East issue, because of the administration or other elements that you know go into the mix of all this, um, it makes it very difficult you know, to get through the budgeting process. I, I've learned over the years that regardless of, of how difficult it is to budget and balance a budget, our citizens still require the same services, they demand the same services, those aren't going to change. You know, you still have to have a level of public safety, you have to have streets, you have to have uh, your utilities together, all of that has to be together. And so how do you provide for it? Well, you, you do your best and uh, you try to get more out of your employees, make sure that you have good quality employees, which we do, have very committed employees in the city. But it, it is a challenge, there's no question. I've been through about three or four of them. Um, some of them are a little more uh, deep-seated declines than, uh, than others. But nevertheless, we get through them. 
So because we get through them, I'm hopeful. Right, right. So you say the baseline economy, you, you feel fundamentals are, are, are uh, secure. So uh, I think, you know, over the past few years here, you've had Lowe's move in, you have Walmart, you have, you have some of those, which can be seen as sort of indicators of some level of, yeah. of, of economic uh, stability. Do you think those are, hopefully that's not going to, Economy's not going to go down go down enough that some of those businesses leave again. No, we would hope not. And and I think that when they come in and and they look at our area and do they mar- do their marketing studies that they do, they understand that there's going to, there are going to be highs and lows that they're going to have to be deal with. And um, so you know, do do businesses you know leave? The answer is yes. Sometimes they do. Uh, but generally, we find that uh, most of your larger businesses will stay. They they can wait it out mm-hmm. and be okay. I wonder about uh, a lot of times when you when I and I talk on a fairly frequent basis to leaders in rural communities. One of the things they talk about and worry about is the young people and and can they stay if they want to. And I assume in a booming economy that everybody can stay if they want to. Does it go back to being more like some of the other rural areas that uh, some of the young people have to leave? Um, well, t- two things there. And, and having raised six kids, I am fairly familiar with, you know, what children like to do, you know, after they graduate from high school. Some like to have the opportunity of getting away from home, experiencing life maybe outside of where they grew up. And, and that's okay. And that's okay. The question is, can we provide opportunities for our young people here uh, that will allow them to make that choice of saying, yes, I want to live in rural. I want to raise my family in rural. And the answer is more so yes now than it's ever been before. One of the greatest reasons for that is because of the, uh, you know, the, the great uh, presence of Utah State University our uh, technology college here that provide those opportunities for students. In addition to that, the scholarships that are have been and likely will remain for these students if they stay here to get through through college. The Utah State program here is just so wonderful because students can start. They might have to take a few uh, classes. You know, in Logan, but generally there are so many opportunities uh, for the kinds of uh, careers that they want to go into right here, and they can get their degrees, they can get, you know, masters, even doctorate degrees right now here in rural. And that's an important thing. Now, when the economy goes down a bit, can these high school students get, uh, you know, jobs quickly out in the oil patch? Uh, like they can when you know things are on the up and up, and the answer is that's more difficult. And maybe, and maybe for them it's good because it says, hey, I need to get an education. I need to uh, really plan for my future instead of just looking right now where the money is. And so I think for those students, it's it's a good thing to uh, kind of force them to think through that a little bit when the economy might be down a bit. But since I assume there's a ripple effect, if, if you know the, some of the oil companies leave, then support companies leave, then 
retail, maybe stuff, you know, ripple effect. I wonder, will there be those those jobs? You know, you get your education, you, you want to move up in the world, will there be those jobs in the Uinta Basin? Well, when you say those jobs, it, you know, those jobs affiliated with the oil and gas industry, don't know. Just depends on, you know, how long that downturn is right. and, you know, how long I, I was talking about, you know, non-oil but but not oil jobs. Once again, it it just uh, it depends on the economy, and uh, you know how the community is growing. You know, regardless of how healthy our economy might be because of the oil and gas, you might have a student that wants to get uh, you know an MBA. He wants to go to Alabama and work. I I don't know, but nevertheless, being able to get their education here is a plus for our community. And, and the, the other thing I have found, too, is that many, many of our kids here, um, that they leave, but they know that they've left over a period of time. They know they've left a quality of life that they want to experience again. And so even like my kids, have, many of them have come back and have found jobs to support a family, and they love the lifestyle what goes into that quality of life, lifestyle? Oh, you know, so many things. One, you know, you hate to, you hate to emphasize the negative things, but, but one thing is the fact that, that you're smaller. You don't have all the traffic issues. You don't have all the major crime issues you do in a more urban setting. Um, but you still have opportunities for children. You still have the great uh, school programs that we have here, the great music programs, the great uh, athletic programs that we have here. You have an incredible sense of volunteerism here in a community like this that adds to the quality of life. And, and that, that is so important. People sense the, the importance of being part of the community, serving the community, I think much more so uh, than if you were in an urban setting. I want to take a, a bit about perception. Um, I, you know, if you're away from the Uinta Basin, perhaps you put on your marketing hat, you know, and see what people are perceiving the basin to be. It'd be dinosaurs, it'd be tourism, it'd be Flaming Gorge, it'd be great outdoor stuff. It would also be extractive industries, mm -hmm. and then you would have a perception based on whether you support that or not. Um, and then I think another thing that, that's at least a lot in the media is be air quality. Um, so I wonder, first, if you talk about the perception, then we could talk about the, the, the actual air quality. Well, unfortunately, the perception that people have is so much driven by the media. And what the media gets many times is what sells, what people like to listen to, what stirs attention. And that's concerning sometimes because those things don't necessarily equate to fact. And so, uh, for example, the air quality issue here in Vernal, uh, yeah, a concern to me uh, because I think that you have a lot of individuals that don't live here but look at air quality in general and try to pinpoint areas where they can, the, they can focus their attention easily. I would say to people, for example, out on the Wasatch Front, those people that are associated with the uh, air quality programs of the state of Utah, look at Salt Lake for heaven's sakes. You know, when you can see air quality issues, 
you know, so, so prevalent. And, you know, when we drive, you know, uh, right into the valley and you can see it, there's a problem. Work on it. And, you know, gov the governor is, uh, you know, the legislature is, they know that they have an air quality problem. But, uh, you know, fortunately, you know, through USU, I think we have been able to show that the uh, concern that many people have that don't live here regarding our air quality really doesn't exist. And so we have to change perception. But let me tell you, we're trying to change perception with fact, with studies, you know, with, with something that, that is more than just hype. And, and I, you know, I hesitate to be so emotional about that, but, but it is, it's a concern to me that, that those that have such a concern for this issue don't live here. Um, and they're trying to, you know, I think draw the attention to areas specifically in the state of Utah, to areas outside of the Wasatch Front that certainly has an air quality problem. So coming at it from a slightly different angle, um, so putting aside perception, putting aside regional um, maybe conflicts on, on this issue, so just, just speaking as a resident of Vernal, do you, is there an air quality problem or, or, or do you, do you, know, are you concerned about it? I've been here a long time. I've been here 37 years, raised six kids, um, have enjoyed, uh, you know, a very big family, lots of friends. I would say no. From my experience here, from my association with, with uh, you know, the hospitals here, I would say no. It's not an issue. Um, that's just, you know, my take on living here and being able to breathe what I consider to be good air. So we've been talking with uh, Vernal City Manager uh, Ken Bassett here in the, uh, the offices for Vernal City. Thank you so much. Thank you for being here. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Festival Opera and Musical Theater. Exploring themes of love and redemption in classic tunes like June is Busting Out All Over and You'll Never Walk Alone. Carousel, July 8th through August 8th in Logan. Information at utahfestival.org. Thanks for listening to uh, Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Coming up, we'll conclude the program with uh, an interview I recorded just last week just outside the StoryCorps mobile booth with StoryCorps facilitator Danielle Anderson. My name is Danielle Anderson. And what, what is your role with StoryCorps? I am um, one of our mobile booth facilitators. Okay. So what I do is I sit in with people while they're recording. Okay. Um, I monitor the audio to make sure everything sounds really good. I take log notes that will accompany their story to the archive. Um, and sometimes I ask questions myself. And so uh, I, I went in earlier uh, with my mother. Mm -hmm. uh, Lala was in there with me, mm -hmm. another facilitator. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I was concentrating on talking with my mother, but, mm -hmm. uh, but then Lala would hold up her hands for five, ten sure, minutes or whatever yeah. it is. So what is what is your experience like when you're in there well, with people? I mean, I think <clears throat> our goal, like on a personal level, is to be just hyper-present, to be really there with our participants and for our participants and trying to like read ways in which we can help them, make them feel more comfortable. Because really our goal is to make sure that their experience is what they want it to be. You know, people come in oftentimes with an idea of what they're hoping to walk away with, you know, what they're hoping to get on that CD. And so our job really is to just kind of help them get that. Um, and sometimes that means answering a lot of questions. Sometimes it means asking a lot of questions and just trying to, to read that on an individual basis. 
you, uh, I don't know, you get, do you get emotion involved in the Do I? Interviews? Yeah. I cry constantly, yeah. constantly. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's part of being present is experiencing um, what people are going through and, 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 and watching them feel it. And that, that very, very much affects me. How long have you been with StoryCorps? Um, I worked in a different capacity with them as an intern, um, and then I've been on the road with them now since January. Okay. Yeah. What, what places have you been? Let's see. My st I started in Jackson, Mississippi, and then I went to New Orleans, and then we went to Omaha, Nebraska, and I was there for a little bit of that, that stop. Um, let's see. And then Colorado Springs. And now we're here. All right, and then on to Seattle. Seattle's next. next. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, that's a broad cross section. It is. Right? It is. I mean, that's kind of the goal, yeah. right? We have the permanent booths in Chicago, San Francisco, and Atlanta, and so we try and hit all the places that aren't those places. Yeah. And so it means a lot of crisscrossing. Right. Do you get a you get a real sense of the place? Do you think? You, it's when you come and meet that's people? yeah. I mean, that's one of my favorite parts of the job. Really, is that when we make a stop, we're there for a full month, and so especially in a community like Vernal, which is you know a little bit smaller than places where we typically stop, you do you get a real sense. You 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 meet people, you see people on a continual basis, and you just you get a real feel feel for the community. And Vernal has been especially welcoming. So, uh, what kinds of people have you had come through the booth in Vernal? Is it typical of what you get? I guess. I don't know is that there, there a typical? is typical. I yeah. yeah. I mean, each town has its own character and its own, you know, uh, different communities and, and, and people that it, you know, people that live there. Um, let's see. In Vernal, we've had a lot of families, like a lot of, of people interviewing family members about family history and, and things that families have experienced, um, which, you know, we, we definitely get some of. But in Vernal, there's been, I would say, a higher percentage of those, and they've been, they've been great. Mm -hmm. Now, do you have people, some people come in apprehensive? Oh, absolutely, all the time. Yeah. I had a couple um, earlier who, um, it was a husband and wife, and he had no idea what he was getting into. It was a surprise. And so, yeah, sure, yeah. absolutely, all the time. And so that's another part of our job is yeah. to make people feel comfortable. Uh, now, something I, I'm guessing you hear is, I don't have a story to tell, or I, you know, all nobody's going to want to hear my story. All the time, all the time. And I mean, it's very easy for me to say it, and I, I believe it 100% that everybody has a story. I, I think that's true, but that doesn't usually work with people. It's more, um, you want to think of it, or with some people, like what, what you want to pass down. Like, I, I always think how amazing it would be if I had my great-great-grandmother's voice on a recording, just hearing her talk about her life and, and what's important to her. And, and we don't generally think of ourselves as those people for future generations of our family, you know, but we are. You know, we're going to be those people for somebody else. Yeah. And so leaving that record, I think, is, is important. It's valuable. Yeah, that's what I told my mother. She said, well, I've written my history, which yeah. is wonderful. Yeah. I told her, now we'll have your voice. Yeah. So how did you how did you find out about Storyboard? What was your introduction um, to it? Well, I'd, I'd heard it on the radio, and I've always been a fan of oral histories, and I studied that um, when I was getting my master's degree. I, I did a bunch and did some documentary work, and then um, just StoryCorps was the perfect fit for me, you know, and the things that I care about and the things that Great. I think are important. So there's a, it's one thing to uh, listen to StoryCorps on the radio, another thing to uh, knock on the door and say you want to work. How did that happen? Oh, yeah. Well, like I said, I started as an intern, which was great. Okay. They have a great internship program. Um, there's a bunch of different departments at StoryCorps, and so you can apply to um, internships in all those various departments. And they really, um, you can really take advantage of that and get to know the organization kind of from the inside. And it, and it really is, it's a very welcoming 
organization like that. And so, yeah, I, I, I worked for six months as a mobile, a mobile tour intern doing outreach, making all the calls to participants and explaining what it is we do and things like that. So, so yeah. yeah. Uh, that, sometimes that must be a kind of a, I don't know, what kind of phone call is that? Oh. Hey, I'm from StoryCorps. What is that? And then you, well, you know. Yeah. I mean, when you do the outreach calls, that is, it's a lot of explaining um, who we are, what we do, and you get a lot of, what? What are you? You know? Um, and so just explaining it in, in, in the same way that you would to, you know, when you, you, when, you, when you try and convince a person or explain it to a person, like what it is we do and why it's important maybe in a broader context, you know, when you're calling an organization, like why is it important as, as, a, as a community that, that Vernal shares its history? I know David I say the founder says his, his vision is to record everybody mm -hmm. right yeah. every every American yeah you know I guess that's what you're yeah. trying to do yeah I mean it we're, to me it's we're creating this archive and that future generations will have ideas of what was what were the things that were most important to us and and and, and how did those find their ways in people's lives in different communities across the country and and what did they talk about what did what what did they care about who did they bring with them right. what kind of questions did they ask so uh, it sounds like you're, you're post StoryCorps, you're probably going to continue in this line of, <laughs> I hope you've got so. your master's in this, right? What, I, what, what I do hope you hope to do? so. I hope so. It's, it, being here now, I, I feel so lucky and so grateful um, that I'm trying very hard not to look too far ahead. But yeah, I do. I, I hope to continue in this. I hope to be doing some kind of documentary work or, or audio documentary work. So why? Why this field? What, what draws you? What's, what's important? You know, well, I mean, I, I grew this. up as a history buff. I love history. I think knowing where we came from is, is really important. And then, you know, you start to study history and you get, um, you, you learn about what happens to the, the leaders and, and, and how they impacted change. And, and you miss a lot of the, the underlying stuff, like, you know, every, everyday people, what were their lives like and, and how did they impact and, and, and how, how did that bring about change? And, and just from a historical perspective, I think getting the voices of, of people is, is invaluable. Well, wonderful. Um, so the booth will be here in uh, in Vernal, outside the Uinta County Library, through the 29th. Yes, exactly. And then off to Seattle. Off to Seattle. Here till the 29th. Yeah. I'm very, very happy to be here. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. That's uh, Daniel Anderson there with uh, StoryCorps. And the StoryCorps booth uh, will be outside the Uinta County Library through July 29th. Go to our website to see if uh, spots are open for you. And we hope you'll join us tomorrow. Thanks for listening today. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Shift Festival, October 7th through 10th in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, an in-depth exploration of the opportunities and challenges at the intersection of conservation and outdoor recreation, featuring food, film, speakers, workshops, and outdoor adventure details at shiftjh.org. Hi, it's Lynn Rosetto-Casper. This week, it's a look at weighing tough food issues. We talk to Mark Linus, a man who worked against GMO foods for years and then changed his mind. Join us. That's The Splendid Table, the show about life's appetites from 8 p.m. Tuesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio.
This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. Thank you for listening to Access Utah today on Utah Public Radio, a service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University.